Hi, everybody. This is Adriana Trajani. I'm the host of You Are What You Read. I have the privilege of interviewing luminaries of our times about the books that shaped them from childhood until now. We get everybody from Sarah Jessica Parker to Kristen Hanna, Mitch Albom, Susie Essman, Craig Ferguson, Rain Wilson, Amor Tolls, you name it, they come, they share. New episodes of You Are What You Read drop every Tuesday on Apple, Spotify, or any major streaming platform wherever you listen to your podcasts. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast is being brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com. Yes, they were. And I wanted to remind everybody that we're still flying honor flights. And there's going to be one on April 1st, and there's going to be another one on April 15th. And I'll get all those details out to you because... That is one of the ways that we commemorate and honor the men and women who served. And I think it's, it's an awesome program, and it's done some amazing things. Certainly all those World War II veterans that were able to go and see that monument, who were really far advanced in age. I mean, uh, the last time I was on a flight, the flight... Um, was comprised of all World War II veterans and two Korean War veterans, but there was still sufficient World War II veterans. And these were gentlemen and two ladies in their 80s and 90s. And it was incredible. It was just incredible. And I, and I, I, um, I will never forget that experience. I was allowed to take a picture of my father on the plane with me, and my father was honored in the ceremony where all of the other veterans were honored, even though he had long since passed. Um, and I'll never forget that. It was a, an amazing experience. And just being around veterans is always an amazing experience for me because they're so selfless and they're so, you, you know, you thank them and they just, you know, most of the time they don't even know what to say. And that makes me even prouder than I already am of the men and women who serve in the armed forces, and I'm pretty darn proud, and so should you be. Um, thank goodness no names to add to our list of fallen warriors, although there have been some incidents on bases around the country that I'm familiar with, but the announcements haven't been made, so I'm just, I never do anything until it's appropriate time, and so uh, I'm holding holding back on, on an inside sort of story that I know from someone who's on a, a base currently. Um, I, I, you know, I watched some of the hearings yesterday. I'm sure many of you did. They were fascinating. The uh, chief of TikTok was in front of Congress. And wow, both sides of the aisle, Democrats and Republicans, went after him like I've never seen, five hours of just just pounding him, pounding him. His name is Shoji Chu, and they chewed him up. I mean, I hate to be use a silly uh, pun, but he got chewed up for sure. And and you know nobody was there to defend him really. On Friday, Chinese internet users and commentators um, did you know rally around him, but we didn't hear any of that. You know the Chinese public didn't hear anything either. The state media described the hearing as a farce and an embarrassment for the United States. 
and China's foreign ministry said the process amounted to an unreasonable suppression of TikTok. And, you know, all I know is I told my husband, who's the only person I've ever seen use TikTok over a year ago to stop using it, and he did. I said, because it's one thing when an American company gets access to information about me. If it's an American company, I may not like it, but I, I agreed to Facebook you know, using algorithms that alert them as to what I'm interested in. I don't actually use Facebook, but I did at one point, and I knew that they were, you know, they were constantly tracking um, what things I liked and what things I, I participated in and what kind of comments appeared on my page. So I got that, but it was an American company. It wasn't the United States government, although now, after hearing all of the uh, revelations that have come out of the Twitter files through guys like Schellenberger, Michael Schellenberger, and uh, Matt Taibbi, and, and Barry Weiss. Well, now we know that the government really did have a lot more input into some of these social media platforms than we ever believed. Of course, the difference is in China, even if uh, TikTok or ByteDance, which is the parent company, even if they didn't want to give the results of the algorithms over to the Chinese government, they would not have that luxury. Um, and and the idea that their foreign minister came out, the foreign minister, woman, I don't I think she's a woman, Mao Ning, yeah, Mao's a, a woman's name, said that China has not and will not ask companies or individuals to collect or provide data information and intelligence located in foreign countries for the Chinese government in a manner that violates local laws. Um, I don't believe you. Sorry. You know, TikTok's parent company, ByteDance, bristles at the notion that they have to divest themselves of uh, Chinese ownership. But I don't even think that... Um, that they really have the authority to ban TikTok uh, without an act of Congress. But we'll see, you know. I think they're certainly um, raising the level of awareness for people. And I was looking at a microblogging website that's called Weibo, which is, uh, you know, a Chinese microblogging website. Um, he got a lot of sympathy, Chu did, from people who called him a lonely hero. Some called him a courageous gentleman, and they thought he uh, showed extreme grace under pressure. Many of those people on that website, which on the microblog site, ridiculed our lawmakers and said that this is what America's like now, you know, and it's true. We're so, we're so confrontational and so divided and TikTok's hearing shows that the two parties should be able to find common ground as long as they have, uh, you know, a CEO of a social media com platform that they can use as a punching bag. <laughs> it really, it, it, you had to have some sympathy for this guy, or at least I did, because, uh, you know, he was at his wit's end, and they just they got more and more aggressive as the time went on. You know, I'm just wondering what it makes us look like in front of the rest of the world. Because if this is viewed as a political persecution of TikTok, and if other countries see this as the United States, uh, you know, basically saying that they are going to 
ban outright platforms and, and, you know, in spite of whatever reassurances they get from Chinese companies or any other company. I mean, you know, what what's to stop uh, any South American country or Denmark? So, you know, you know, for a designer, a software designer to come up with a platform that becomes hugely popular. Although you, you have to admit, if you're of my generation, meaning, you know, the, the, almost the greatest generation, but not quite. That's how I refer to us, the baby boomers. You look at this and you're still scratching your head trying to figure out how does this stuff take off the way it does? I I just, for the life of me, um, you know, it's hard enough to get people to follow you on Twitter, never mind to launch a social media platform that will have millions, tens of millions, hundred million subscribers and people participating on a regular basis, participating long enough for you to have an algorithm figure them out. It just is, uh, you know, uh, there are some things I guess I'm just never going to understand and that would definitely be one of them. How do these things work? How does something get so popular? How do uh, YouTube videos go viral? I, I, I don't know. And I've had some videos that went viral. And it was nothing I did. Somebody else must have orchestrated it. So, of course, now we find out that uh, Russia, Northcom has revealed that Russia is close to persistent nuclear cruise missile attack submarine. And that that submarine has a presence off the coast of America. It will have it. It doesn't have it yet, but will have it in the next year or two. He was asked some questions by Joni Ernst, the senator from Iowa, on the threat of Chinese and Russian cruise missile submarines that are getting real close to the U.S. And the NORTHCOM commander, a man by the name of General Glenn Van Herk, he said the deployments of the Russian Yasin-class nuclear cruise missile attack boats have been deploying more frequently. Oh, that's great. He says, the risk is absolutely increasing. Within the last year, Russia has also placed their Yasins in the Pacific. Now, not only the Atlantic, but we also have them in the Pacific. And it's just a matter of time, maybe a year, maybe two, before that's a persistent threat, 24 hours a day. Might be time for a senior leader in, uh, in our nation to, to investigate. This is a, a huge, a 13,800-ton Yasin-class attack boats are among the most capable submarines in the entire world. In particular, three current boats in the class are capable of a special quiet operations mode that makes them difficult to detect in the open ocean. In 2018, the lead boat in the class, the Severodvinsk, or what, Severodvinsk, evaded U.S. efforts to find it for weeks. Navy officials have told the USNI News that the service has become increasingly concerned with the efficacy of the Russian submarine force. Oh, that's great. Now, don't you feel safe now? When the uh, NORTHCOM commander says, we're not organized, we're not trained, we're not equipped to operate and respond in the Arctic, infrastructure, that's a big concern for me now. Okay, so our generals are concerned. 
But I'm not supposed to say we've got a commander-in-chief who can't, you know, doesn't know what floor to push on an elevator. Somebody has to do it for him. I kid you not. And the Putin arrest warrant that they issued at the uh, criminal court at The Hague, uh, the South Africa is where the next um, BRICS summit is going to take place, and I think it's in August, somewhere, sometime in the summer. And now that that warrant for war crimes has been issued against Vladimir Putin, uh, South Africa is actually one of the signatories to the Rome Statute. That's the statute that actually established the court, and they may have to execute the arrest order. They're looking at it very seriously. We're concerned about the situation of the people of Ukraine. What we would want to do is be in a position where we could continue to engage with both countries to persuade them towards peace. South Africa has adopted a neutral stance on Russia's war with Ukraine. The government's position has drawn opprobrium from some of the nation's biggest trading partners, including us and the European Union, along with some of the big banks. So I, I, does anybody actually see South Africa uh, arresting a visiting head of state? I mean, come on. I mean, they better start thinking of some other options because uh, I don't think they can execute that warrant. I mean, I know they, they probably could, but I don't think they should. <laughs> I, think, I remember they had a lot of criticism back in 2015 because they wouldn't um, arrest Omar al-Bashir the, who was then the president of the Sudan when he was at an African Union summit in the country. The former president, uh, Jacob Zuma in South Africa, said, hey, we'll withdraw from the ICC if they force our hand. So we'll see. The South African government is the host of a delegation of Russian ministers in, in a week or two for a meeting of the two nations' joint intergovernmental committee on trade and economic cooperation. So let's see. I'm sure, the, I'm sure the discussion will be happening. All right. Don't forget to at least go visit our website, 850wftl.com, so you can participate in our contests. And more, uh, you know, an actual easier way to do that, to be in the contest, is to download our app, our 850wftl app. Right now we're giving away a $50 DoorDash gift card so you can get saucy with freaking delicious fried chicken tenders from Tender Shacks. You can either register to win at the app or at the website. I'm going to take a quick break. I'll be right back. All these crazy alien stories can't be true, can they? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Uh, so much news and so many, you know, sad stories, really sad stories. What's going on in France right now is a pretty, pretty uh, incredible. You know, the French just can't seem to stop protesting. They have like the uh, revolutionary itch. You know, this is the same country where Louis the Sixteenth uh, got guillotined, and and they they literally have signs going Louis the Sixteenth was guillotined. Macron, we can start again. 
I mean, come on. There's already been a casualty. King Charles III's, this was his first state visit, has now been postponed due to fears of violence. And on yesterday, on yesterday, yesterday, um, there were 900 fires lit, airports were blocked, um, they were throwing paving stones. These are large things, paving stones, throwing them at the police and, and yelling things, you know, it's just crazy. Um, Jupiterian Macron was the first to theorize that the French expect a touch of majesty from their head of state and never really got over losing the monarchy. And they pine for the king like a lost limb. The paradox, he added, was that the French are also a nation of regicidal monarchists. And sure enough, just nine months after he was elected for his second term, the French are now screaming off with his head. But if you're looking at it from here, from across the channel, or anywhere else, well, from England is across the channel, from here is across the Atlantic Ocean, the call to arms for a new 1789 is pretty bizarre. You know, they're f screaming and yelling because France raised the retirement age from 62 to 64. I mean, that's like a no-brainer, right? In an aging country with a very high life expectancy, where you have a worker to retiree ratio that is, is like, I think it's at 1.7 to 1 which is substantially down from three to one, which is what it was back in 1970. Germans retire at 67, Britons at 68, or at least that's what it's gonna be, I think, uh, in September. So surely the French can't be the only Western welfare state democracy to have its cake and eat it when it comes to pensions, but that's the message that Mr. Macron has been pushing and it's not working. They have an allergy to pension funds. The French have to work more and longer for the country's generous pay-as-you-go system to remain afloat. If nothing changes, deficits will be huge. Does any of this sound familiar? Contrary to what you might think, it's not innocuous. It runs pretty deep. It's kind of an existential problem, or at least it is considered that by about two-thirds of the French people. French give precedence to life over work. It's a very emotional, sociological issue for them. It might sound irrational to people like us, even absurd to Americans. We just work, work, work. But people look at retirement as a kind of paradise just before you croak. You know, it's the apple tart with your grandchildren on a Wednesday. That's the epitome of paradise. And apparently President Macron has lost uh, touch with that completely. So we'll say the French economist, uh, Thomas Piketty, said the French are convinced that raising the legal retirement age rather than the number of years of pension contributions, meaning those who start early, retire early, which is the most unfair measure. And just watching the strikes and protests over there, you know, and then being told, oh my goodness, what, what, you know, did Donald Trump just, you know, call for protests if he, uh, you know, if he gets perp walked? Oh, my gosh. Did he threaten the DA? 
You know, actually, he's the one who's been threatened over and over and over again. But they just, you know, they don't get it. They don't get it that democratic countries protest. That's what we do. If we don't like what's happening, we protest. And, and right now we're in the middle of a stress test for justice because we are so polarized We're as a nation. And all of these inquiries into a former president, they are concerning. You know, how do you impartially investigate the other political party that you're running against? All of these investigations, all of them are coming to a point where they have to have decisions made, whether it's the inquiry by Alvin, uh, you know, Bragg into the payments to Stormy, or in Georgia where the local prostitute, prosecutor, rather, local prostitute, well, maybe that was a, a noticeable slip, where the local prosecutor is moving towards a decision about charges related to efforts by Mr. Trump and his allies to overturn the loss in that state in 2020. And then you have Jack Smith, the Justice Department special counsel, who's, uh, who this week they said could provide critical evidence in the investigation into Trump's handling of classified documents and the possible obstruction of justice. I mean, it's a three-prong attack. And for months, they've been bracing for an all-out attack from the Republican-controlled House, which has launched its own investigations into what you clearly have to see as the weaponization of the department against the right. I mean, that's what it is. And of course, uh, you know, the, these people have become vicious monsters. That's what he said. And, and he's right. That's what Trump said, and he's absolutely right. That doesn't mean that uh, there should be violence. But there's violence in France. And they're a lot more uh, understanding than we are. <coughs> so let me take a quick break. At 12, uh, yeah, 12.45, I'll be talking with Derek from TMZ. So stay right where you are. I'll be right back. So interesting, you know, the Democrat Party who once prided themselves on being like the smartest people in the room, not so smart anymore, right? In a shock to no one, this is an article by Karen Block that was sent to me from Israel Hayam. It's an opinion piece, but it's very, very relevant. It says, in a shock to no one, Democrats now favor the Palestinians over Israel. In a recent Gallup poll, 49% of Democrats now say they sympathize more with the Arabs living in Judea and Samaria, compared with just 38% who side with Israelis, which is an 11-point drop in just one year. This is a lot. This is a very dangerous time. You know, you can, you can point to a lot of different people. Definitely failed Jewish leadership. Um the overly politicized con conservative and reform synagogues. And I believe, really, that the, the, the main reason, and, and the author of this article agreed with me, is that they have been very successful in feeding this line of BS to people 
because they have only had one goal all along, right? And that was to destroy Israel, to create enough lies about Israel, enough lies about the Jewish people that the world would say, okay, if the Arabs want to destroy it, that's okay with us. I mean, these Islamist activists, besides murdering children, you know, their, their, their strongest skill is propaganda. Democrats who used to call themselves the smartest people in the room have fallen for every one of those lies from Israel being an apartheid state that colonizes helpless terrorists to Jews being the beneficiaries of white privilege. Indeed, really. The Democratic Party has become part of the Palestinianism propaganda machine, and it helps Islamist activists wrap their lies in trendy intersectionality and critical race theory. What status-conscious Democrat wants to be on the wrong side of the victim Olympics? And for those who want to look away, imagine what our grandparents and great-grandparents, staunch Democrats from the moment they hit Ellis Island, would think about this. Imagine what John F. Kennedy or Martin Luther King, both Zionists, would say. I don't understand how any Jew can remain in the Democrat Party after this. And don't give me that we will work from within stuff. Because how's that working? It's not. And to those who believe that this version of the Democratic Party needs to go away, that's never going to go back to liberalism in the classic sense, this poll just confirms the obvious. But the fact is that every Jew and anyone who claims to not be anti-Semitic left the party already. Or, well, let me put it to you this way. If they left the party the party would die. Three quarters of American Jews, that's 5.7 million, identify as Democrats. Three quarters. I mean, that's almost as high as the African-American community. And we're seeing the damage that's caused by a pro-terrorist Democratic Party on a nearly hourly basis. They block funding on the Iron Dome missile defense system back in 2021. You got uh, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, who wants to continue the funding of Islamist terrorism in Judea and Samaria. What more do the Democrats need to do to show the Jews in America where their loyalty lies? Yeah. Disgraced former New York Governor Andrew Cuomo has announced he's launching an organization called Progressives for Israel. Well, that sounds nice, but if you live through his vicious self-serving COVID policies, <clears throat> you're probably not sure he can, you know, do anything moral. <coughs> Either this version of the Democrat Party returns to sanity or it's going to go away. And any American Jew who stays in this, who doesn't care about the survival of the Jewish people, well, good, you get what you deserve. What else needs to happen before people realize just how dangerous this moment is? But uh, listen, it's like, how many times do I have to say that? How many more times do we have to have this discussion? 100, 300, how many more times? <coughs> and then there's this other news story, the CDC just reported that there's this potentially deadly and drug-resistant fungus 
that's spreading rapidly in long-term care facilities. It's called uh, C. auris or Candida auris, and it typically causes ear infections or skin rashes to people who are already immunocompromised. The fungus has a mortality rate of about 30%. That's very high. And m more concerning is that it resists most of the antifungal treatments on the market. I wonder how ivermectin works on it. Oh, not that anybody will be allowed to ask that question or even to take ivermectin because uh, we, we have to hate that drug. The CDC told us to. There was actually a doctor who lost his license recently because he insisted on prescribing ivermectin to a young patient who was stricken with COVID. So, uh, you know, this is a fungus that can actually live and thrive on a lot of different surfaces. And you can't get rid of it with water or light or soap or even an ammonia-based clean cleaning agent. So once a facility has been compromised, it's pretty much, uh, you know, game over. Most infections occur in hospitals. Long-term patients are especially susceptible. Deep cleaning with alcohol-based solutions and UV lights is being explored as a countermeasure. We think it's from surfaces, says Dr. Mar Dr. Marty Macari, who's from John Hopkins. Particularly doorknobs, bathroom services, cables, sheets in hospitals that could actually house one of these candida fungal pathogens for as long as 30 days. It could actually be a part of what we call colonized infection. Macari also warned that the fungus could survive in somewhat healthier hosts without noticeable negative effects only to spread to more vulnerable patient, patients nearby. Oh, goody. Did want to congratulate Stanford University, who finally suspended that idiot, a diversity dean, who, uh, who didn't stand up for the speaker, who happened to have been a conservative at Stanford Law School. I mean, you can't even make that stuff up. But they finally, they suspended her. She went and wrote an op-ed, which I read this morning, which is really, I mean, as my friend said, talk about, uh, you know, if, you, if they gave out a Nobel Prize for chutzpah, you know, she, she said, oh, this is what free speech is all about. You know, me getting up here and lambasting Judge Duncan. The law school's dean, Jenny Martinez, sent a letter to Judge Dun Duncan apologizing for the disruption of the event, calling it inconsistent with our policies on free speech. Then later this week, she announced in a 10-page letter to the school that Dean Steinbeck had been placed on disciplinary leave for her actions in supporting the demonstrators. She also announced that all students at the law school would be required to undergo a half-day training on free speech in the First Amendment. Well, bravo for Jenny Martinez. Conservatives on campus say they've been facing discrimination and that one reason students reacted so strongly to the presence of Judge Duncan is because they aren't even accustomed to hearing conservative points of view and they don't know how to react when they do. Now, of course, uh, you know, what's going on in our college campuses is so despicable to most of us. Now in University of Michigan, 
They're going to segregate graduating students based on race and gender. That's right. The Multicultural Affairs Office at Grand Valley State University in Michigan will now reportedly host separate graduation ceremonies for black students, Latinx students, Native American students, and LGBTQIA plus students. In addition to these, the institution will have a general graduation ceremony that will be open to all students. Now, how ridiculous is that to hold five segregated graduation celebrations? There'll be no special celebration, though, for straight white people, of course, you know, just in case you were wondering. And in, in addition, uh, there won't be a party reserved specifically for Asian graduates. This is so crazy. They've been doing this at Columbia and Harvard for a while. But now it's just the spreading the evil tentacles. You know, uh, I, I remember when Tom Cotton got all upset when he criticized Columbia University's decision to hold separate graduation events divided by race and, and, and gender. But that's what you get if you teach critical race theory. This is what you get. So I'm not surprised. And, uh, you know, if, if, if society wants to segregate, I'll stand against it, even though it's not going to be popular. But, you know, I, I came from a, a generation that we were proud of integrating society. The last thing we wanted to do was have separate graduations for black students and Latin students and gay students, okay? How, how is that? The United States of America is not. Anyway, let me take a break. Um, Derek's coming up next, or at least that's the plan. Uh, One o'clock, Dan Bongino. At four o'clock, Ben Shapiro. And then, of course, we'll be into the weekend. And I know if you're anything like me, it couldn't come soon enough. But I'll be back to finish this last segment. Stay right where you are. All right, and welcome back. Um, we haven't heard from Derek yet, but we'll keep a phone line open just in case he's able to break away from all that breaking celebrity news. Although, you know, if he doesn't call on time, he usually doesn't call. So we will just proceed without him. Apparently, there is a Senate ethics uh, investigation now being launched against Senator Lindsey Graham who they say solicited campaign contributions for a runoff election for the Senate seat in Georgia in 2022 while he was conducting an interview with Fox News in the, in the Russell Senate office building. Throughout the course of the nine-minute interview with Fox, the Ethics Committee determined that Graham personally solicited campaign contributions on behalf of Republican Senate candidate Herschel Walker five distinct occasions. The panel came to the conclusion that Graham had improperly conducted campaign activity in a federal building and that his actions had violated the norm that senators may only use public resources for official actions and not for partisan political activity. So, you know, you know Herschel didn't win. Why can't they just let this go? You know, they, they don't want to investigate Hunter Biden and his laptop but they're going to have an ethics investigation against Lindsey Graham for something that didn't even result in anything because Walker got defeated by Ralph Warnock, you know, a man who, who stands in the pulpit of, of all places, Ebenezer Baptist Church where Martin Luther, Dr. Martin Luther King preached. He stands in that pulpit 
on, you know, well, I guess now whenever he is able to, and uh, and he's pro, pro-choice, you know. He, he, uh-oh, he's no longer my favorite person, but we'll let him come on. Hello there, Derek. How you doing? Hi. I'm not only your favorite, I'm your number one kid. <laughs> so don't you forget it. Even when, even when I show up a little bit late, I, I have faith in that spot. Hey, listen, you even have a coffee mug that says, uh, you know, that you're my favorite. So I, I have to I have to agree that you can be anybody's favorite if they get to know you. <laughs> so ah, listen, yeah, from your words, to, from, from your mouth to God's ears. Yeah, from my so mouth to Harvey's ears is what you want. <laughs> uh, everything's everything's going all right. You know, obviously there's plenty of celebrity news to talk about, and I thought, well, let me get Derek on. First and foremost, Gladys Knight's all ticked off at President Joe Biden. How did Gladys even get into the mix? This is crazy, because Gladys actually this week just accepted a a prestigious award at the White House, Um, so you would think they'd be on good terms. She got, like, the Medal of Art and was there on hand to, to receive the award. But we got our hands on a letter that she sent to President Biden excoriating him for not taking a sit-down meeting with her over what she says is a very vital issue. She runs this company called uh, Ricino Optical. She's a big investor in it. They make you know, COVID products, antigen tests, anti-fog gloves, things of that nature. Mm-hmm. And she's like, this is an African-American woman-owned minority business. Um, and we want to get a government contract. We've got millions of these products in warehouses in Chicago. And you've been ignoring our calls, and we're trying to get a contract here. And then I turn on the news, and here's where she drops the hammer. She says, I see you took a meeting with uh, the South Korean band BTS, but you're, you're too good to take a meeting with me, a civil rights legend, a legendary entertainer, and she is upset. Mm. What was his meeting with uh, BTS all about? I mean, I saw, I saw them with the uh, press secretary in the press briefing room, but that, I didn't know they actually were with the president. Yeah, you know, apparently she, she she's just saying uh, BTS was there, I think, in, in terms of just raising the profile of the, the White House. They probably had some message, but, you know, the White House in the Obama years, which Biden was also present for, would just have celebrities on hand yeah. to sort of, you know, improve their, burnish their public image. You see this all the time, but she's saying, look, I'm a, I'm a celebrity and I've got a real business and I've got a lot of product to uh, move and I deserve a government contract. And she said she calls it a the government contracting process a a good old boys network. And Oof. in some sense, she's right. There can be a chumminess and political favoritism. But remember, Joe Biden's big coalition to get elected was the African American community. And mm-hmm. she's saying you should, of all people, look out for us. I've taken many meetings with you, and I deserve a sit down. Yeah. Well, you can't can't blame her. Uh, I'm sure he would sit down with Jay-Z. Jay-Z's now worth, what, $2.5 billion with a B dollars? Oh, yeah. I mean, he's the mogul of all moguls. And in the, in the wake of, you know, Kanye's net worth going down uh, after all of the anti-Semitic tirades, now Forbes is saying, well, you know who the big, big kahuna is? It's, it's Jay-Z with mm-hmm. a jaw-dropping $2.5 billion because he mm-hmm. just sold his alcohol brand do see uh, cognac mm-hmm. back to its parent company, Bacardi, for mm-hmm. about $750 million. So you add that to his tally, he and uh, Beyonce are just worth a ton, a ton of money. Yeah. Well, listen, but at least they do something for their money. They run businesses. They make music. I mean, I don't mind when people get rich off of their initiative, you know. So 
Oh, absolutely. Look, Jay-Z. Jay-Z started from the bottom. I mean, yeah. there's there's no doubt that Jay-Z has earned his wealth. There's no nepotism when it comes to Jay-Z. He has built this fortune, so you got to just tip your hat to him. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, here in the state of Florida, where we work out on a regular basis, and many people working out at uh, public gyms that reopened a year or two ago, apparently not a safe place for Takashi 69. <laughs> Yeah, so Takashi Six Nine is who's led. It's hard to ever say he's led a quiet existence, but you know, a couple of years ago, he famously, uh, essentially snitched or ratted out some of his uh, compatriots in a big RICO case and saved himself some some time behind bars. But we've now learned that he was at a gym. Uh, this was in Florida at LA Fitness, and he got a beatdown near the sauna from a bunch of guys. And there's surveillance footage. Of the guy, of one guy sort of talking on the phone, letting another sort of big, heavy set, tough looking guy into the gym. Uh, and then they just beeline it to the sauna area and unleash this absolute beatdown. We've got pictures of Takashi's face. I mean, he was really, really pummeled um, with them shouting, you know, snitches are welcome here, essentially. Mm. Now, Takashi is saying, uh, I'm not going to change my behavior. You're not going to scare me. But I don't know about this. I mean, look, I, I, when I saw this story, I thought of Whitey Bulger because for years he was the most famous rat there was, and he was never sort of uh, harmed because of it, and then he was. Yeah. And then, you know, when you're least expecting it, when you just try to resume a normal life, I mean, he was in prison, but, you know, he was stabbed to death. And mm-hmm. he's, uh, the memories are long about these things. Stuff mm-hmm. doesn't always happen immediately, but you can never let your guard down. Right. Well, if you want to talk about a long memory, I will tell you that the person who was responsible for my most memorable NBA moment passed this week. And I, you know, I felt like you. I was so crushed by the passing of Willis Reed that I, you know, I was like incoherent for an hour. Um, I, course, I wanted to talk to you so much about this. I I was distraught, and I never got to see him play, and I didn't get to live through those mixed championships, but he was the captain of, yeah. of those squads, and him running out of the tunnel um, to beat the Lakers in Game 7, uh, and the Lakers had the team with El Baylor, they had Jerry West, they had Wilt Chamberlain, yeah. and apparently when he walked out of that tunnel, all eyes were on him, and it was just such an incredible moment. We actually, Michael Babcock, our sports guy, talked to Bill Bradley, who was also on that team, former oh, yeah. senator and great Nick Great, um, and he talked about that moment being so indelible, and he said he's never yeah, heard the garden like that. MSG well, and, has never sounded like that. Yeah, and I said that on the air because I just lucked out that I was in the garden that night, and, you know, the moment when they dimmed all the lights, which they never did. You know, they do that all the time now in games, I think as a direct result of when they did it in the Knicks, in Madison Square Garden. But when the light came out and he emerged from that tunnel, it was deafening because there was no way they could have possibly won without him. And he was badly injured. But, you know, it was it was quite a moment. And, and he was just a warrior, a real warrior his whole career. And, of course, you and I yes. are both Nick fans, but that was the last Nick team that deserved fans, to be honest. Yeah, just just an incredible guy and sort of an ambassador of the game for so many years. By all accounts, a really a great person and, and one of the one of the NBA legends. And so it's really sad. It's been, you know, we've been hearing from Clyde Frazier and Bill Bradley. I mean, they, they looked up to him, and these are some NBA legends in their own right. So right. Uh, really, really a tough, tough week. 
Well, I can thank uh, Jeff Jeff Morris. He was the one who got me into that game. That's <laughs> so he, he, you know, he had season's tickets. So it was a pretty memorable night, and I've never had another NBA not, night like that. Well, thanks. Well, Derek. I hope the Knicks do something in the playoffs in in, uh, in Willis Reed's memory. I, I I can say they're doing well this year, so hopefully that comes through. Yeah, are you are your kids back in school? Did the strike they end? They are. They are back okay. in school. The the strike, the three day strike is over, so Nick is right. back in school. All right, we'll talk. Thanks. Uh, thanks again. Take care. All right. Take care. All right. Well, that does it for me this week. Uh, I'll be back. My plan is to be back here on Monday at noon, if it be his will, and he delays his coming. Remember what lies behind us and what lies ahead of us are tiny matters compared to what lies within us. So wherever you are, just be yourself. Everybody else is taken. Have a pleasant weekend. Try to turn the TV off, you know, and just uh, just chill. See you on Monday. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast has been brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com.